From Ashabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network, I am Yara Hawari, and this is Rethinking Palestine. As we end the year 2023, the Israeli regime genocide in Gaza continues. Bombs are still raining down on people's homes, on schools, on hospitals and shelters. Meanwhile, the people in Gaza are being pushed further and further south, with fears that they'll eventually be exiled into the Egyptian Sinai Desert. The Israeli army has invaded and occupied the north of Gaza and seems intent on staying. Many say this is the Nakba of our generation, and indeed we have surpassed 1948 in terms of both the numbers of those killed and those displaced. This is a horrific moment in the Palestinian story, but it does not exist in isolation. Rather, it exists within the broader context of continuous Zionist settler colonialism and erasure and unwavering international impunity for the Israeli regime. And that's why in this podcast episode, we have collated some of the most important soundbites of all our podcast episodes of 2023. Together, they shed light on the Palestinian experience under settler colonialism provide analysis on repressive policies and highlight pushback and resistance by Palestinians and their allies. Allies of the Israeli regime have been working hard in recent years to criminalise solidarity with the Palestinian struggle for liberation. These efforts have been so draconian that many argue they undermine the very fundamental principles of a democracy. Darek Kenishawa, the Shabaka US Policy Fellow, explain why this is happening in the US and what this means for political movements beyond those related to Palestine. Across the US, a growing number of Americans are heeding calls to boycott Israeli goods and services. Unsurprisingly, uh, Israel's apologists are stepping up their efforts at both the state and federal levels to shield Israel from accountability. And they're doing this by going straight for our First Amendment rights to free speech and political boycott. And they're insisting that by criticizing a nation state's policies, we are somehow being inherently anti-Semitic. Since 2014, dozens of states have adopted laws designed to punish individuals and companies that refuse to do business with those who profit from the Israeli regime's occupation. And their message to us is clear. Take action, any action, to hold Israel accountable for its crimes and you will pay. They won't stop at boycotts of Israel. If these forces are successful, they will use it as a template to target the right to boycott just about anything that goes against their interests. In fact, um, several states have already used um, these anti-BDS boycott legislations as template for copycat laws that will criminalize other boycotts and other forms of protest, such as preventing businesses from boycotting fossil fuels and firearms industries. And for example, we're seeing in, in Kentucky, for example, SB 205, which prohibits the state from entering into contracts with companies unless they submit written certification that they will not engage in a boycott of energy companies. So just to reiterate my earlier point, efforts to clamp down on Palestinian solidarity by outlawing boycotts of Israel are just one tactic amid a larger strategy by reactionary elements on both sides of the partisan divide to undermine democratic values in the U.S. And if they're successful, you know, these forces will undoubtedly direct their efforts at other forms of protest and free speech that are being leveraged in calls for justice. This kind of high-level repression is not only happening in the U.S., Ben Jamal, director of the British Palestine Solidarity Campaign, explained how this kind of repression is also happening in the UK and how it too has wide implications on British citizens' rights and freedom of expression. 
this global campaign being waged by Israel to delegitimize the Palestinian struggle. And obviously that begins with targeting any form of Palestinian resistance, delegitimizing it, uh, targeting human rights defenders on the ground uh, that are defending the rights of Palestinians, usually through narratives of terrorism, but then also expanding globally to target any organization and individuals that are active uh, in supporting the Palestinian struggle for liberation. And there, the most usual narrative that's used is to define any such activism as anti-Semitic by conflating legitimate support for the Palestinian struggle uh, with anti-Semitism. And that campaign of delegitimization is very, very active in the UK. And where we see that playing out, uh, we see it at the moment, for example, actively playing out in academic space in universities. We have numerous examples of individual students being targeted uh, for their activism, uh, being accused of anti-Semitism, being subjected to disciplinary investigations by their universities. We see the same tactic used against academics in the vast majority of those cases. And there is now an organisation called the European Legal Support Centre that is very, very active in providing support to individuals and organisations under attack. And in most of those cases, uh, the disciplinary proceedings do not proceed to anyone having action taken against them because the allegations are entirely spurious and can be shown to be so. But obviously what it does is create a chilling effect. Um, so it, it toxifies um, the issue of Palestine and it makes people very cautious about putting their head above the parapet and being vocal in their, in their advocacy for Palestinian rights. So we've got that dynamic and then that colludes with another dynamic which is a government in the UK I would say successive conservative governments in the UK that have bringing in a whole range of laws uh, that in lots of ways are clamping down uh, in the right to protest we've had a whole bevy of laws uh, the policing bill laws that are affecting the right to strike and most recently um, the public uh, order act uh, and what that is doing is in very serious ways attacking the fundamental right to protest. So we know that this repression of Palestinian solidarity is happening and many of the ways in which it is happening. But why is it happening? Mahan Assad, historian at the University of Arizona and a Shabaka member, gave us an explanation in the context of the attempts to criminalise the chant from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. That idea of free Palestine from the river to the sea being political speech is itself a recognition of Palestinians' legitimate political claims, their legitimate national uh, identity, and their legitimate and long-standing, I should add, personal ties to the land. So I do see the draconian measures that you mentioned, and there are many more that are happening, particularly across college campuses, which is something that I'm particularly attuned to. I see it as part of a, as a testament in many ways to the success of the pro-Palestinian movement that has managed to put Palestinian rights and pal the Palestinian struggle for freedom front and center in the struggles of justice in the West today. And I also see the pushback against this chant and the real draconian measures and punishments from banning student groups to firing people from their jobs to actual physical threats 
against people. I see all of that as a recognition of the fact that the other side doesn't have a logical answer to the demand for Palestinian freedom. They don't know how to respond to the demand for Palestinian freedom. So what they try to do is to criminalize the demand for Palestinian freedom. And I think that's what we're seeing. Um, it's very difficult to see, but I'm also heartened by all the people who are coming to see what's happening for what it is. That these are demands for Palestinian freedom, and these are attempts to criminalize the demands for Palestinian freedom. And just as we are seeing cracks within the network of global state support for the Israeli regime, we're also seeing cracks within the Israeli regime itself. In their thousands, Israelis took part in so-called pro-democracy protests over the last year. These protests were largely aimed at Netanyahu's coalition and their efforts to erode Israeli Jewish democracy through various judicial reforms. But they were also in anger at Netanyahu's attempts to evade corruption charges. Amir Mahul, activist and Shabaka member, shared with us why these protests are about saving the Israeli regime from itself and upholding militant settler colonialism. The other aspect of the Israeli demonstrations, they are very militarized demonstrations. The military voice, the security voice is very high. People are saying that we are going to the army, we are protecting the Israel, we are protecting all citizens. So we don't agree that we will be led by ministers who are not serving in the army, like in Greer and Smotrich. They are totally Israeli. They have very strong Israeli identity, which is very deep Zionist identity that we have to protect our state, to defend it, in order to be able to overcome all of our enemies. This is the, the language and the debate. Nobody is speaking about occupation, nobody is speaking about to change the regime, nobody is speaking about to make it a state of all citizens, not only for Jews. This, the opposition of the Netanyahu, are in line with Netanyahu in supporting the Jewish state. All of them support during the law of um, confiscate or to the citizenship of Palestinians. So it's, it's not a matter that Anybody wants to change the nature of the state. They want to keep the nature of the state. Indeed, many in the West viewed these protests as a battle between liberal and right-wing Zionism and had high hopes for the former to win out. Mohanad Ayash, professor of sociology at Mount Royal University and a Shabaka member, explained what liberal Zionism is and how it is a core pillar of the Zionist movement. Liberal Zionism is today's sort of dominant force on the left wing of the Zionist movement, which itself is not that dominant anymore. As you rightly point out, Israeli politics have uh, veered further and further into the right. But liberal Zionism basically presents itself as the defender of human rights, international security, law and order, uh, progress, democracy, toleration uh, of, of diversity, uh, respect for ethnic, racial and religious and gender diversity and so on and so forth. So that's its place in the larger Zionist movement. It speaks the language of Israel is a liberal democracy that promotes a European, Euro-American progress in civilization and modernity in general. Um, so some of its main uh, principles or tenets is that it proclaims that the establishment of the Israeli state 
is the only way to secure Jewish safety and security. It sees the Israeli state as the only, like the Zionist movement, right? As it is Zionist, it sees the Israeli state as the only uh, way to resolve the quote-unquote Jewish question of anti-Semitic Europe. And and it views the land, uh, the historic land of Palestine as the uh, rightful place where that project should unfold, that, that this land is really uh, the land of Israel and that uh, Israeli Jews have an inherent uh, sovereign claim to that territory. And therefore, uh, 1948 becomes a central event that it views as unquestionable. Uh, as far as liberal Zionism is concerned, 1948 was a war of independence. It was a war where Israel was created to safeguard uh, Jews from across the world and protect uh, themselves against the aggression of Arab states who were hostile to the idea of creating the Jewish state in, in the land of historic Palestine. And some of them will acknowledge uh, the quote-unquote tragic dimension of, of that founding, that is the displacement and expulsion of uh, the indigenous Palestinian inhabitants, but they ultimately view this as a righteous, valid, and legitimate uh, war of independence that should no longer be open to any kind of serious decolonial critiques. Uh, so therefore, any kind of Palestinian critiques of the foundation of the Israeli state. So that becomes the, I think, the most critical element of, of liberal Zionism. Don't touch 1948. If you're enjoying this podcast, please visit our website, al-shabaka.org, where you will find more Palestinian policy analysis and where you can join our mailing list and donate to support our work. From liberal Zionism to neoliberalism, Asma Abu Mazid, a gender and economic justice expert and a Shabaka member, explained how the donor community through the aid and development sector is complicit in the depoliticization of the reality in Palestine, and particularly with regards to the energy crisis that is facing the West Bank and Gaza. Energy crisis in Palestine, donors treat it as a humanitarian or a development issues. So by preparing Palestinians with capacity building, a technical capacity building, by investing in technology-related solutions, by in investing in solar power, for example, Palestinians supposedly should be able to solve the issue or lessen the amount of energy crisis that they have. And this is a very depoliticized view to an issue that is very political in its core. The issue with the electricity and the energy crisis is very political because in order to have energy security and energy dependence, you need to have control and sovereignty over your natural resources so that you can work around coming up with solutions that is benefiting for the Palestinian community. But the whole structure in which Palestinians are living, they do not have any control over their natural resources because the Israeli uh, regime is controlling these natural resources. So what the international community end up doing is really providing Palestinians with painkillers and a very short-term solutions rather than addressing the big elephant in the room, rather than addressing uh, the root causes, which is uh, the role of the Israeli regime in perpetuating and maintaining energy crisis. So any solution, if we want to talk about sustainable solution, it really needs to challenge the role of the Israeli uh, regime. And it also needs to hold them accountable for all the challenges that Palestinians face. And I'll just give an example of Palestinians in, in Area C 
where they need to have permits to establish any solar energy system and usually they get denied these permits but even in donor supported projects that establish solar panels these solar panels are being destroyed and there is no accountability for the Israeli regime for destroying these infrastructure that has been paid by the international community The donor community in Palestine is also complicit in increased political repression of Palestinians in the West Bank from the PA, the Palestinian Authority. Alat Tartir, Director and Senior Researcher of the MENA Programme at SIPRI and Policy Advisor at Shabaka, explained this in the context of the security coordination and the so-called revolving door policy. The Oslo Accords in that sense was uh, a security arrangement or a security agreement in, effect, in effective terms to sustain the status quo and not an agreement to make the Palestinian people living in the West Bank and Gaza in particular closer to statehood or to freedom. And the key element of that framework, of that security framework, is the so-called security coordination or security collaboration paradigm. And security Collaboration or security coordination takes different forms, different shapes, and the revolving door policy is one of its components. What we call in Arabic al-bab al-dawar, or the revolving door policy, is effectively a mechanism to operationalize the overall security framework agreement or arrangement or coordination that put in place with Oslo Accords. And this revolving door is a transactional and operational protocol um, whereby the Palestinians and Palestinians activists, uh, freedom fighters, opposition members and the oppositions are imprisoned by the Palestinian Authority or the Israeli regime and then directly or indirectly handed over or handed back to one of those, the Palestinian Authority or Israel. So for example, the Palestinian Authority can arrest um, a Palestinian And few days, few hours, few weeks, few months later, the person would be arrested by the Israeli regime for the same charges. But it is precisely when um, there is an intifada or there is an uprising or there is a uh, height uh, uh, in terms of resistance and there is a new peak of resistance or larger mobilization, that's when the revolving door policy gets utilized and instrumentalized. So it is by design designed to do that at that time when Palestinians are mobilizing, when Palestinians are resisting, when the Palestinians are acting together to resist the oppression uh, by the by the Israeli regime. Amidst this deepening repression and entrenchment of colonial occupation, Palestinians, as they have done so since 1948, are pushing back. Rashid Khalidi history professor at Columbia University and a Shabaka member, came on the podcast to tell us about the theft of his family's land in Jerusalem and the legal case around it. I think the case is important, not because any, I think, of the people involved in it has any sense that they're going to recover their property, certainly not in the short term. That's not the point. The point is, first of all, to highlight something that is constantly, as you suggested in one of your earlier questions, Um, obscured in media coverage, which is just the theft of Palestinian property, of Palestinian land, not just the theft of a country and not just the ethnic cleansing of a country, but the seizure of people's livelihoods, agricultural and urban, um, private property, bank accounts, rugs, books, everything that they owned was stolen 
from them uh, after they were driven out of their homes in 1948. Um, and as you say, this is never this is never talked about. So I think uh, any 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 spotlight that can be put on this general issue, um, I think, is 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 all to the good. The second thing is, I hope it, it will at the very least embarrass and ideally stop the U.S. government from, in fact, formally accepting through taking this property and building an embassy on it, Israel's theft of Palestinian land. Now, Israel stole the land, and that's an issue that you know will, can only be dealt with in the very long term. But the U.S. government is about to build on that property and thereby consecrate through that building its acceptance of this theft, formally accept, in other words, what Israel has done. And hopefully bringing up this issue can stop that, or at the very least cause maximum embarrassment to the people who are doing it. On May the 2nd, 2023, political prisoner and leader of the prison hunger strikes, Khadr Adnan, died. Basil Faraj, assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy and Cultural Studies at Birzeit University and a Shabaka member, Explain the significance of his struggle and that of the wider struggle of Palestinian political prisoners. What Khadr Adnan symbolizes is not just the hunger striking for liberation or the attempt to kind of force the, your jailer to give you your freedom. And in his case, it's uh, his freedom through through his death, basically, this, this time, his martyrdom. But I think he also makes perhaps his martyrdom is is a call to action for us to relook actually at what Palestinian prisoners mean. Why why did these people, why have they spent most of their lives behind bars? What does it mean to have a national movement which did not, which is not able actually, not in the past, it's in the present, it's not able or had not been able yet to liberate all of its prisoners, all of its members of its struggle basically, and particularly to think about those who have lingered for decades behind Israel's uh, walls, including for instance Walid Dakka, who as listeners might know, who, who has been diagnosed as well with a very rare, rare disease. And, and I think here uh, we have Khadr Adnan and we have also the triumph of of the six Palestinian prisoners who managed to dig their own way to freedom. So in a way, I think it's a wake-up call and also perhaps um, an assertion of the Palestinian prisoners and and by prisoners, I mean us outside prisons and, and those inside prisons, an assertion to our uh, desire for freedom, a desire for freedom that has to also, you know, um, uh, that we have to work for. That 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 is not that will not just be simply given to us again as, as the 1970 hunger strike where prisoners had won their right to address their jailer as jailer through struggle. So they they basically made that confrontation clear between them as prisoners as captives and uh, between the prison authority as their jailer as their occupier. For many Palestinians, imagining a future free of Zionist settler colonial domination is difficult. The constant process of erasure that Palestinians face mean that surviving the ever-deteriorating present takes priority. Serona Abu Akhar, a poet and artist and worker in Palestinian education, and Dan Abdullah, designer, educator and researcher, co-developed a discussion-based game called Countless Palestinian Futures and came on Rethinking Palestine to discuss how this project seeks to challenge the temporal domination and stimulate the imagination by helping people develop tangible outcomes and ideas around Palestinian futures. Palestinians essentially like our return and, and other people's returns have been snatched from us. And it's been placed within a very like hegemonic process dictated by the UN and by the IMF and all of these governing bodies. And when Palestinians have attempted 
to implement their, their return, whether through the Great March of Return or what we saw during the Unity Intifada with people or in Jordan and in Lebanon walking back to Palestine. We, we see the very material ramifications of that. And, and so hopefully this game is a, is, a, is a very humble, small way of us not seeking that permission. I've just remembered one really nice response or wouldn't wouldn't say a really nice response, but it was a, a discussion that took place regarding the return question is, are these kind of status of Palestinians, you know, one with ID card, one from Gaza, one from Jordan, do they remain? And is it something that's going to be stamped on me if I return? I think that was a very powerful question um, and thing to think about. And it's amazing how much context changes, you know, who's in the room, changes the responses, because that experience, I think that the crowds of people we played with generally in London is quite a homogeneous, no, I'm not saying that Palestinians are, but it was, you know, you're more or less from, from similar spaces, whereas the in Lebanon it wasn't. And so they were concerned with, with very different things than what we are concerned about. In the second iteration at May Day Rooms, um, I remember one, one of the re- responses that I found to be really interesting was, and Danny, you just pointed it out, was it depends on the context creates the response and it really forces us to grapple with, I think, the the facade of nationalism, but also I think like the very real questions we, we are facing, like who are we beyond this crisis in many stances? And one of the questions we asked was about what kind of education would we teach? Something along those lines. And someone's first immediate response was, well, we have to then, the first thing we have to do is agree on a shared history and like one unified history. And I found that to be so, so fascinating because what does that history then look like? What, what is the necessity of an agreed shared history in order to then live together? I, I don't know, but it's, I don't have the answer, but um, I think that's part of the fun. Many human rights experts have asserted that the Israeli regime's latest assault on Gaza amounts to genocide. At the time of recording, over 20,000 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli bombs, with at least a third of them children, and many more thought to be trapped under the rubble. Meanwhile, millions of people around the world have gathered in the streets of their cities and towns, declaring solidarity with the Palestinian people and with Gaza. Organisations and groups have also issued statements condemning the Israeli regime, not only for its most recent onslaught, but also for its decades-long colonial occupation of Palestine. There have likewise been efforts at direct action to shut weapons factories down and prevent the shipment of arms from reaching the Israeli regime. Yet this widespread international solidarity has been facing repression and an Orwellian crackdown from governments and various different actors. I spoke with Leila Kataman of the European Legal Support Centre and Diala Shamas of the Centre for Constitutional Rights for further insight on this suppression of mobilisation. Together, they offer concrete advice for how to resist such efforts to stifle Palestinian solidarity and to continue standing with Gaza amidst this unfolding genocide. There's also a big defiance achievable through numbers. The demonstration bans in Berlin, although the police really tries their best to prevent any assembly or protest from happening, when there's a lot of numbers, they can't do much. So even though there's a demonstration ban, in Germany, and there was one in uh, France, people still went on the streets in huge numbers, so huge that the police couldn't do anything. Uh, of course, they can still be violent, but people stick together and march regardless. 
And apart from that, uh, I think it is the time to speak up and out more than like to speak out against uh, what is happening more than ever before. A lot of people are. It is, I think, also the time to join forces. So to become, to like connect with other people at whether your place of employment or study or elsewhere, uh, which share the same passion or will to do something about it and to organize together. Smear campaigns, for example, which target uh, a person, usually aim to isolate a person from society. It is always easier to attack one person than a group. So there's definitely strength in numbers uh, when it comes to defying the current uh, repression. And remember, you're not alone. Speak out about the repression rather than be silent about it. It's actually really helpful to be doing that. I think historically, we've gone back and forth on this question of whether we want to be sort of advertising how difficult it is to speak about Palestinian rights because we don't want to be discouraging folks from doing it. But at this point, it's well past that point. Everybody knows that this is happening. And I think when you speak out, you also draw support um, and solidarity and also can build organizing. So organizing within your professional network or community, we've seen really inspirational models of artists coming together to support each other. Uh, we've seen people in the medical profession offer up support and finding employment when someone's lost a job. Um, I think that's kind of the level at which we're seeing solidarity and it's a really important way to be building resilience in these moments of heightened targeting. Thank you for listening to our final episode of the year and we at Ashabaka continue to have hope that Palestinians will one day experience freedom. Rethinking Palestine is brought to you by Ashabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network. Ashabaka is the only global independent Palestinian think tank whose mission is to produce critical policy analysis and collectively imagine a new policy-making paradigm for Palestine and Palestinians worldwide. For more information or to donate to support our work, visit al-shabaka.org. And importantly, don't forget to subscribe to Rethinking Palestine wherever you listen to podcasts.